If we continue to beg and grovel and hope and plead and vote and whatever, participate in their system in all these different ways, we're going to keep getting the same results. Welcome to the Propaganda Report. I'm Monica Perez. And I'm Brad Binkley. Today, we bring you a very special edition of the Propaganda Report. Normally, we bring you news of the day from a perspective of truth, liberty, and justice with the occasional deep dive into what the powers that be are really up to, often in their own words, but we rarely do interviews. Today, however, is a very worthy exception. My most trusted source for news and analysis, the Corbett Report, is open source journalism at its finest. James Corbett's research is thorough and reliable. His analysis is honest and enlightening. And most important, James always comes from a position of intellectual and moral integrity. James, thank you so much for being here and for letting us pick your brain. Welcome. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. So this is the thing that I puzzle about the absolute most. And I feel like if I were to, if I were permitted to ask you one question it would be about the the kind of very big picture. I want to know the little picture stuff too, but you have spent so much time kind of following what the powers that be are up to. You basically own the concept of the 3D chessboard. And I just wonder if after all of this time, you have maybe a clearer picture than most of how it really works, or is it still kind of hidden in that fog and the ether that I feel like it's really meant to be. Like, do you have a big picture feeling <laughs> yeah. about it all? Interesting. Yeah, meant to be. That's an interesting uh, thought. And yeah, uh, well, I do have a lot of thoughts about this, but I I will uh, just note passingly that the 3D chess, unfortunately, was subsumed by the, uh, the whole Trump 4D <laughs> chess phenomenon and <laughs> all of that stuff yeah. that we've seen. So <laughs> sadly, that. that was... Yeah. It was it was such a good analogy, but I feel like I can't use it anymore. Anyway, uh, they do that on I think purpose too. They take away it, something that's that true. Is so robust that's very true. Meaning, and like they, the deep state. Yeah. Or how about woke? Mm-hmm. Woke yeah, is now yeah, politically up, correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, right? Like just, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it makes me. There's crazy. so many of these terms that get yeah perverted um, once they once they become useful, and uh, I, we've seen that even with things like false flag. It, suddenly, false flag means all sorts of manner of different things, all the way from. Complete hoax well, never happened to some sort of more nuanced version, but it's all I under will, this one. I have to say one thing that a long time ago, you, I had a thought, and it's funny because when these thoughts really ripen and kind of everybody is caught up, you don't realize how significant it was originally. But around the same time I was having this thought, I heard you mention that like maybe this you know, maybe we are, we ourselves are falling into a trap or following a script or whatever by the very nature of figuring out these conspiracies by actually theorizing about the conspiracies. Now you can see that conspiracy theory itself has been totally co-opted and perverted. But a couple of years ago, when that thought seems to have first occurred to you and me, it, it, it wasn't crystal clear that it was a setup, but they've even co-opted that. Yeah, the mainstreaming of conspiracy culture and commodification. So now you can buy the T-shirts with all the Illuminati <laughs> logos and things. And yeah, and it's kind of, you know, kind of cool and fun and like it's a game or something. Uh, um, yeah, that's absolutely yeah. been in the cards for a number of years now. And uh, it, it, the real question is, how do you combat that? Because it is such an easy process to sen- simply kind of package it and sell it in a much weakened form. 
uh, that people don't really even realize where it's really coming from. And they can't. Let me yeah. ask you a question. Is that a precursor to silencing conspiracies, to silencing people who are trying to reveal the truth? That's what it kind of seems like. I think it's actually I, 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 as bad as the kind of commodification and making conspiracy theory into some sort of cultural game or something. As bad as that is, at, I, I, at least it isn't censorship. And I think it's the the kind of the attempt that would be made to take that and make it into something containable and and something that won't really affect if it trickles down into the culture uh, real conspiracy research then people will kind of confuse it with the the kind of trendy memes or whatever so that it won't have as much effect i think it it was almost an attempt at an inoculation of the public i guess against this type of information which is uh, uh, the first step that they would take and then when that if that doesn't contain it then you go towards the censorship so i actually see it as kind of the not, 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 not necessarily a precursor, but an attempt to sort of head off the the need for censorship. That reminds me, if you look at Cass Sunstein's memo, which you probably haven't looked at in a long time, but it says conspiracy theory, and it goes through how to deal with it. And overwhelming it or ridiculing it is like the first line of defense, especially in a so-called free society. And he says, like, in the end... You would have to, you could go in and just ban speech, but it, you probably wouldn't get away with it in a place that considers itself a democracy. So maybe this is the best they can do. Yeah, his uh, his proposal was cognitive infiltration, which is an yep. interesting idea because uh, when you think about it, uh, even the publishing of that paper goes some way towards creating the kind of infighting in conspiracy circles that he was uh, essentially proposing, because then suddenly everyone becomes a cognitive infiltrator. If you don't agree with me, that's because you're working for them. And, you know, it oh, just it, yes. it further drives people apart. So even just publishing a paper like that goes some way towards accomplishing its own aim. Cass Sunstein has a brand new book out, by the way. I watched him talk a little bit about it in a CFR panel discussion the other day. His book is titled Too Much Information. And what's hmm. it? What's the uh, premise? From what I gathered, I haven't got all the way through it yet, but it seems like another social behavioral economics thing. Like how do you how to control the public or nudge them, so to speak, to make yeah. the decisions you want them to make? Well, one of the things he said in that paper, he pointed out, and I've seen it elsewhere from that era, is that it's so much easier to control the conversation in the digital world than it is to actually have to go to town hall meetings and be the guy who goes around to get other guys to like, you know, whatever, join a militia or something. It's so much easier to just set up these little subgroups, which Binkley and I have considered will probably be run mainly by AI eventually. But that it's that the internet itself, which seems like a vessel or vehicle for freedom, for free speech to encourage this kind of idea sharing makes it easier for them to kind of muddy the waters and, and right. make it harder to access, which yep. makes stuff like this, you know, yeah. makes, it makes it feel hopeless. You know, it makes it feel... And you nice. and interesting, you bring up, well, uh, someday it'll be AI. Well, uh, we'll never, it will, it will never be announced to the public. <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah. uh, just that term AI is, I know that's a trigger word for some people. They hate the idea. There's no such thing as, all right, well, okay, whatever you want to call it, there will be computer systems that will be indiscernible from humans at some point. And that really is an interesting point because I, I even see it in just the spam email I get because I get an incredible amount of spam email, uh, probably even more so than most people because of I have you know an email address connected to my okay. website. So I get to see it. And it's interesting. I noticed an interesting phenomenon a few years ago where I started to get complete indecipherable 
word salad, just totally random words from the dictionary as spam. And I thought, like, really? what is even the point of that? Like, it's just random words and then a link. And I'm like, of course, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be clicking that link. Thanks. But I then I noticed like a test run. Yeah, well, exactly. I noticed that, that that same thing started to, it almost, it's like it started to refine itself. I started, I kept getting the same kind of spam, but it started to coalesce into the sentences. And now it's clearly picking up on keywords and things. I got one today that was something about coronavirus, blah, 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 something. And it almost is starting to make sense. It's almost humanly intelligible. It's still obviously spam with an obvious spam link. But it's starting to get more. And clearly, you know, there are bots yeah. that are being trained right now to essentially communicate. And uh, and they uh, learn from your response. Yeah, exactly. So, like, what exactly? All you to have to do is happens. get someone to click. Right. Yeah. yeah. If someone clicks on this click, one, we'll yes. start to refine towards that whatever was in right. that email. Right. Dude, it's, it is a little nerve wracking. I I'm, next thing I'm going to listen to is your interview about the, rejecting the technocracy, which seems like something you've done a few times. And I was just never ready for it before, but mm. now I'm ready for it. I was going to ask you how, like, if you feel totally liberated having quit Twitter. Uh, I wouldn't say totally liberated, but certainly <laughs> slightly more liberated than I was before anyway, not being right, mentally right, enslaved. Right, right. Got it. Yeah, because, uh, yeah, uh, for people who didn't pick up on that, yeah, I did quit Twitter, I think, two years ago at this point. And um, there were a number of different reasons about the, for that. The, the actual, like, explicit reason at that time was this stupid nonsensical Twitter beef drama egotistical nonsense that I got caught up in because I was associated with someone who was going crazy. So I had to uh, disassociate myself. And and at that time, I was just looking at Twitter and just seeing the, the garbage that it was causing in people, uh, generally speaking. Uh, and, and of course, even that tendency in myself, it's so much easier just to make a smir- snarky sideswipe at someone on Twitter <laughs> than you would ever say to them in real life. But the real... The real thing that really actually made me quit was I remember going to my park, going to the park with my children here in Japan, playing with my children and, you know, just taking the phone out just to quickly scroll my Twitter feed. And I'm I'm sitting there playing with my children like, what am I doing? This technology is programming me to be to behave in a certain way, to live in this world in a certain way. And I didn't like where that was going. So I got out of there and I do not regret it for one second. Yeah, for you, you could. So what happens to me is I feel like. It's not really me being addicted to it because it's kind of my work. So, like, right? I, yeah, I, that know, of course hard. that was always my excuse yeah. as well because it is my work. Like, I I do have to know what's going on in the world, but I I've discovered ways to do that that I can take control of rather than it taking control of me. I get well, anxiety that... thinking about Twitter, thinking yeah. about just the mass amounts of yeah. stuff you go on, and like you said, it brings out the worst in people, and oftentimes yep. not always, but. Not always, but a lot of the time. Enough of the time that it's concerning in and of itself. That was the th- one thing I wanted to ask you about. Like, so you, you had a beef. What when you when the haters come out? Because you do research. You you do not seems to me if you're pulling punches. I don't even want to know what's behind the curtain. But it seems to me that you're not pulling any punches, and you must take a lot of heat for that personal flack. Like when you have a beef with somebody. That kind of thing. Like, how do you how do you deal with that? Can you just put it out of your mind? Does it not actually bother you? Did you have to learn how to how to deal with it and put it right. out of your mind? Well, actually, the funny thing is that that Twitter beef that I mentioned wasn't even mine. It was other people, but I was associated with someone who was involved in it. So it was by a degree of association. But uh, I 
I think I'm particularly, I want to say I'm well suited to this work because uh, they talk about water off a duck's back. And that really is what a lot of the, yeah, of course, I get people who, you know, hate on me because I, whatever, you don't talk about this or you you, you got this wrong or whatever. Uh, it really doesn't tend to affect me. Uh, I like to think that I'm open to constructive criticism, but <laughs> remarkably little of <laughs> that kind of uh, pejorative uh, laden uh, screeds are yeah. really constructive, right? I have um, but, noticed that, yeah, people are not uh, always open to constructive criticism. If that stuff rolls off, off their back, even the constructive stuff does, but it's it suits you. Yeah. Well, it, I, I just, I don't, I've never been interested in engaging in comments back and forth with people, uh, discussion one-on-one -on -one in a comment section on the internet, because I've always been particularly aware, like, I don't know who's on the other side of this. And at this point, I don't even know a person is on the other side of it. I'm not going right. to get involved in individual one-on-one -on -one comment flame war discussions or whatever. That's not the way... Uh, that's I, even if my job was to change people's minds, which I actually I don't even look at it that way. But even if it was, that would be the least effective way of doing it. I can either go out and make a podcast that at this point is going to be seen by tens of thousands of people at the very least, sometimes hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions. Or I could spend all my time arguing with what could be a very well be a bot in the comment section. Uh, I know well, where my my talents are better served. I think. I think I in my experience, there are trolls or people or whatever who actually do that to waste your time because your time could be used elsewhere. If you actually engage with certain people, it will, it will go on forever. And then I started to think this is that that's one of the actual goals of it is to waste your time to ensnare you in that stuff that doesn't have any leverageability as far as reaching people. But that's one thing to just like let the haters roll off your back. But it gets worse than that in that there's censorship and maybe even worse. So I, I, until last week, I had a terrestrial radio show for eight and a half years and it, I got deplatformed from WordPress and now I lost that gig. I, I feel like it's because of the way I was talking about the coronavirus. It's out of Atlanta, which is near the CDC. But I said, you know what? I'd rather be Atkinsoned than Hastingsed. So, mm -hmm. yeah. so I just, I feel like, yeah, you can let criticism roll off your back, but at a certain point, I mean, do you feel like, do, are you worried? Are you, do you feel safer not being in North America? Like, you know, what's your, how do you deal with that? Well, yeah, I mean, just on that note, yeah, I haven't set foot in the United States in 15 years and I'm not planning to go anytime soon. I hope, uh, yeah, I'm not planning on booking any flights through there anyway. Um, but I think more generally speaking, uh, to me, oh, yes, of course, censorship is an issue and it's an increasing issue, obviously. I think even the so-called normiest of normies would be able to see by now that, yeah, clearly there is an issue going on about what speech will be allowed to be expressed online on various platforms and what will not going forward in the future. But for me, the real issue here is that that kind of censorship is not going to be defeated by by what? By simply arguing against YouTube? No, YouTube, you have to allow me on your platform. That's that seems to me like a a, a game that's been rigged. Uh, that that you uh, the only winning move is yeah. not to play. And yeah. the real in, the real answer to that censorship is to support the platforms and ideas and ways of doing things that do not rely on those controlled outlets. And it's going to be hard. 
And it's going to be the kind of pirate, you know, communications sort of thing that has always existed. I mean, there was pirate radio back in the day when people actually listened to radio. And of course, it was never going to be mainstream, popular, millions of people listening just by the nature of what it was. But that's kind of the point. And actually, for me, the Internet, as it originally functioned in the early days of the World Wide Web, really was that kind of space that was crazy and wild and and not many people not as many people anyway. It certainly wasn't mainstream. Most people weren't on it. And the people who were there were kind of all, all over the place anyway. And that was the Wild West. And that's what attracted people to it in a certain sense. It was the Wild West. There were things happening there. It was a new way of doing things. But now that it's being all corporate controlled and commodified and turned, YouTube is being turned into, you know, CNN light, essentially. Uh, the the exciting stuff is going to start happening elsewhere and the cool kids will move somewhere else. And then eventually that will get co-opted and commodified and then you have to move somewhere else again. But uh, that's kind of the cycle is the way I see it. And this censorship problem clearly is a problem, but there are, there are technological ways around the censorship, at least the ones that they're coming out with on these platforms at this point. That's what we need to be focused on because yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm amazed that my voice has survived on YouTube and other controlled platforms like that, as long as it has, I never expected to have a decade and a half of the kind of reach that I've had. And clearly I'm being algorithmically controlled at this point so that I would be truly flabbergasted if any of my pieces went really viral ever again. I'm not expecting that. But, uh, you know, I've had that window of opportunity. I've been blessed to have that and build up an audience. And now it's time to really start blowing the horn. People, let's get off of these controlled platforms because the answer is not going to be found there. Well, I was also wondering then how the how you can continue to do the kind of research you do, because I noticed I actually called it the week it happened. It was the Parkland shooting in Florida in February. It was Valentine's Day 2018. And that week I was just trying to find the truth of that story, which prior to that day, any story that came out, I could always find the truth. People wouldn't always believe me, but I'd be like, oh, no, I definitely figured this out. And I just couldn't anymore. I mean, I'm not like super adept at going around, uh, you know, going to the to the more obscure ways of searching and all that. But I wondered how you in like right now continue to do open source journalism. I don't want your secrets, but mm. are you still doing it? I don't have any secrets, to be sure. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I don't have. Binkley does research yeah. and he like has these little tricks that he can kind of get get to things I can't get to. And I don't know if he's down on it's the gotten a lot harder. Just, oh, it has gotten a lot. Definitely harder. Definitely got okay. a lot harder. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. It is getting harder. And I, I think, again, I think everyone is starting to notice this. Certainly, if you use, you know, Google as your search engine. Yeah, clearly it's being getting harder and harder. And I've talked about this a few times, like uh, I did a video called um, We Need to Talk About Search, where I talked about the real problem here is not necessarily even that it's getting harder and harder on this or that search platform to to search out specific stories. It's that once you go down this road far enough, people won't even know to search for the things that they're not finding. Because at this point, I mean, people might know that, oh, I, you know, oh, James Corbett did a Federal Reserve documentary. And you can, with that information, you'll find it one way or another. It might take a long time. You might have to search very specifically. It might take, you know, some some back-end searches, but you'll get it. But at some point in the future, some someone who's never heard of me and doesn't know my work is not going to know to search for that. So they're going to search for Federal Reserve. And all they're going to find mm-hmm. is the absolute, you know, mainstream, uh, acceptable, palatable stuff. So um, you're exactly right. This is an incredibly important problem. And one, I mean, 
how can you possibly know what it is that you're not finding, right? That's kind of the, the insidious part of all of this. I like to think that I still, I still know enough and I know what to search and I know what places to go to. So I think I can still find things and maybe to a certain extent I can't, but what are the things that I'm not finding because things are changing and I can't answer that. I don't know. So you're exactly right. That is really the most insidious part of all of this is how do we even know that we're really getting uh, information that we that we don't know we're not getting? I mean, again, yeah. by definition, we have no idea. I think that we, like our generation, we do get it. We kind of bridge the uh, the boomer Karen thing. I have this theory, like my mom watches Fox News and like she thinks that's the news. And my kids watch YouTube and they think that's the news, but they don't care if it's not because... I'm just a Karen and I don't know because I think, you know, whatever frogs are gay or so, you know, like they, <laughs> there are these, there are these like uh, pejorative prototypes that they get fed, like, okay, boomer right. and all this stuff that, that tries to neutralize, I think the one generation between like my mom's Fox news and my kids completely jacked into YouTube where we remember like they open internet and we know the stuff's out there. We're totally, we've got our eyes open and we get it, but they're, they are systematically not only like just negating this stuff and neutralizing it, but they're making, it's like the anti-vax thing. They're kind of making it, they're demonizing anybody who, who breaches the official narrative. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's an excellent point. And and since it actually, basically what you're saying is Gen X are the only last uh, sane people on earth. I, I guess I'll have to agree with you on that. <laughs> but you're, you're right. I mean, there is something to be said for that. I, I, again, yeah, I do. And I assume you do as well have the perspective of having been on the internet for a couple of decades now and really seen the development, seen it go completely mainstream commercial and seen the way that, you know, and also the clickbait culture and all of that kind of stuff. And so we do have a ex- perspective on this that we kind of understand, yeah, to be skeptical of both mainstream and so-called alternative. I mean, you have to keep your critical thinking switch on all the time, which I'd like to think. I mean, you don't need that perspective in order to to see that, but it really does help. It, I mean, of course, yeah, I don't take anything for granted either in mainstream world, certainly, or online either. Well, that's what I was going to ask you about. I call it truth dar. I think probably correctly it would be called discernment. But like for me, people say, oh, this one's a limited hangout or that one's limited hangout. And my answer is, hey, man, I get more out of a limited hangout than it gets out of me. So Mm -hmm. bring Mm -hmm. me the limited hangouts because I have discernment. And I can yeah. I, I can really through experience and just having an open mind and not being afraid of looking up in the sky and being like, yeah, that's not water vapor. You know, like just yeah. open yeah. your mind to it. You could actually figure that stuff out. And I just w- wondered if you had the similar experience in that it it takes it does take a lot of time, like years of experience. But then I feel like it's pretty I mean, I can pretty much spot a psyop a mile away, I think. I like to think so, too. (laughs) And of course, I do propaganda watch. So I'm talking about this type of thing on a regular weekly basis and trying to 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 not I mean, it isn't even for my own benefit, really. It's 
I, I like to think I'm modeling how to critically look at some of these stories and pick them apart. And uh, that's something that I need the practice and I need to sharpen my skills. And I hope the people in the audience get something out of seeing me do that week after week. Um, but yeah, that's that's ultimately what it is about. It is a process and a practice and you have to take each story as it comes and then pick it apart and look for the deeper meaning and then look for the meaning below that. And there's generally several layers to it. And that's why I find it frustrating that everyone tries to I, well, not everyone tries. I mean, that's a generalization, but a lot of people want, and I understand why they want the simple and easy packaged answer that this is a psyop or this is 100% real, or you can trust this person or you can't trust this. It's never, ever that straightforward. And it always requires a bit of discernment, a bit of truth dar, if you will. So I understand that completely. And that's why it's frustrating to see, I mean, to see someone, for example, completely dismiss an entire story because, oh, it comes from that source or because of this or that. Well, okay, let's take that into account and let's see if there's any information in here that we can still glean out of it. Just because it came from this source doesn't mean that it's wrong. We have to see what's verifiable to it or that type of nuance, unfortunately, is that's never been popular. I understand. <laughs> and it's never going to be popular, but it's uh, it's what I do. And I hope people can appreciate that. In modern times, too, with Twitter and everything, they're simplifying the way people think even more so. People are thinking in just emojis and, and GIFs or GIFs or however you pronounce yeah. it. You touched on it a little bit. I wanted to ask you, when it comes to news analysis, do you have – what are your starting assumptions like going in about the way you think about the news? That's a very good question, but it's very broad. I, I don't know if I have a starting assumption in general terms. It's generally case by case. On given stories, I might have a particular inclination towards this or that. But um, I mean, let's look at a specific example. Let's look at the coronavirus phenomenon. To me, it is flabbergasting how 100% certain a lot of people tend to be about their own pet theory about what's going on right now, especially because I just, the data is not in. I do, there's a lot that I do not know about what's happening right now. And I am comfortable to say, I do not know. There are things that I do know. There are things that I don't know. And I want to delineate that and be very clear about it because uh, certainly, as someone with an audience that I'm responsible to, I am trying to model the way to g approach this. And I just see the, I get it, again, clickbait kind of headlines. I know exactly what's happening and 100% how to deal with it. And 99% uh, of the time you click on it and the person really doesn't. And that that's frustrating for me specifically. So you have to take it on a case-by-case -case basis. And uh, of course, I have, I have a, now a decade and a half of really thorough research that I've done on issues like this that can inform my perspective on it. But I try not to let that pre prejudge what's going on, because, again, uh, different things can happen. And, and sometimes new information comes to light that changes what I've thought before. The longer that I'm in this, essentially, the less cocky I am and sure I am that I know 100 percent what's happening at all times. Yeah, I, I get that, too. But I, I have to connect something about this coronavirus thing with the the propaganda that you were talking about. I feel like the power of the propaganda itself is is in taking it so seriously. I totally do take it seriously, but I also always try to tell people that if if a story, a news story is going to change what you think about your principles or the rights or protections that you're entitled to, just take a step back, you know, like take a step back. Don't let it affect your principles. And that can kind of disempower the propaganda a little bit. And I feel like with the coronavirus thing, 
they they tell the story, they tell the story. And are you familiar, James, with this event 201? The, yes, yes. Okay, so we did a lot of work on that. And Binkley was way ahead of it. So we were talking about how the coronavirus story was going to unfold, not realizing it would really go in lockstep with this event 201, which for listeners who don't know about it, it was a live simulation of a coronavirus that was conducted in October of 2019, one month before the real one came out. It was done by the World Economic Forum, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and Johns Hopkins. And for anyone who thinks there's a they, that would be the they in this case. And and what was amazing to me was how across the board, national governments, international organizations, the press, especially academia and science, all went in lockstep with this insane reaction, this unprecedented overreaction to this thing, which was exactly what Event 201 was talking about and kind of wanted to spark. But the real issue of it, you had pointed out, you really put your finger on it in the... the, uh, piece that you did about it, that you don't have to believe Event 201 is a conspiracy. You don't have to believe any of this stuff. However, why is it's the dog that didn't bark? Why aren't scientists from from Johns Hopkins to UCLA saying, hey, like we don't actually the 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 testing here is they're not actually doing lab tests they're just doing clinical diagnosis. It's varying from like week to week, from country to country. There's uh, the tests themselves are known to have faulty reagents. You were talking about it. Listen to your thing that uh, Atkinson came out with, and uh, they had to admit that it, historically flu tests were were abysmally inaccurate to the point where it was anti-information. And the fact that this seems to be the case, or at least a possibility in this situation, yet no one is coming out about it, to me, it has it demonstrates beyond the shadow of a doubt that there that there is some, if not explicit, implicit kind of go along to get along with the official narrative at the highest level. So you're really not going to get the right answer, and you have to just kind of negate the information that's coming down before you start freaking out. Yeah. And I think we see that reflected even in the mainstream conversation, because there are a few voices that make it into the mainstream that are saying, you know, it's crazy that we are going to this level of panic. We don't even have tests that work for it and that kind of thing. But it's generally portrayed. Of course, they'll come and spin that in the exact opposite way, as in it's so much worse than what we know, as opposed to we really don't know. And we we know very little. And in fact, uh, the the amount of hype that's being generated around this is absolutely inordinate to the the situation, um, which of course is part of the agenda. Exactly as you say, I, I did write about this in my recent article. I hope people will read it if they haven't. Coronavirus: the cures will be worse than the disease. Where I'm making the point, yeah, there's a million theories about what this is, where it's come from, natural, man-made, real, fake, all of the possible variations there therein. But the real point of this is going to be the reaction that we're already starting to see. And I, I don't think people really, uh, a lot of people may not appreciate just how deeply into every corner of our lives this could be pushed. And I'm not saying necessarily this is it, but we can see clearly this, this uh, kicks the football f- far down the field on a number of different agenda issues. Um, everything from internal passports of various kinds 
to uh, to forced vaccinations, to forced quarantines, to uh, forced medical treatment, to uh, economic transformation. Um, you know, more people work from home. Even the even the molding of social activities, um, the the sort of oh, now you know, be afraid to approach anyone. Don't go within a meter of another human being, and we're going to have to find ways to basically live in our homes uh, like prisoners, essentially. Uh, that that idea is now being pushed on the population, and I don't know. I don't know if this is going to go all the way with this, but at at any rate, it gives us a glimpse into what all the way would look like in the event of you know, a real biowarfare agent being released, if this isn't an example of that. Yeah, I was thinking of two possibilities, one being that this is a cover-up or a whitewash or whatever, an opportunity to blame not Keynesian economics for what has to be a real reckoning for the 2008 can-kicking. So, you know, we're at 10 years out in expansion, 11 years out in expansion, interest rates are 1%, like they might have to go to negative interest rates and then they can blame the coronavirus instead of, well, obviously this was inevitable. I don't know. There's a possibility of that. And I also thought there's a possibility that they would put all these policies in place for one of the most, the biggest things in event 201. First of all, an essential element in suppressing the media was conspiracy theories. So when I saw all these conspiracy theories coming out, which I normally evaluate pretty soberly, I was like, this smacks a lot of what they were looking for in order to justify suppressing anybody who violates the official narrative. But there was also this idea that they they uh, one of the calls to action was making sure commerce continues and money keeps flowing and all that in the case of a real pandemic where everybody's going to die. And I was reminded of like in World War II, the money kept flowing, even though the world was at war, the money kept flowing in Europe. And I wondered if they would actually use this maybe as a substitute for war or whatever. And, and there would be a real one at some point. And they wanted to make sure that the hierarchy could kind of stay in their ivory towers and not get their their bank accounts dirtied if they had this test run kind of and had the policies in place as is laid out in the event 201 materials, it's kind of freaky. Yeah. And that is certainly one possibility, but there is the other possibility that this will be used as the trigger or at least the ostensible trigger for global economic collapse. That is still a possibility. Yeah. And that actually serves their interests as well, especially because we know for decades they've been basically laying out the, the architecture for an international global governmental st structure based on economic ties uh, directed by the Bank for International Settlements through their various working groups uh, like uh, uh, I can never remember the name of it off the top of my head. It was a alphabet soup. Yeah, exactly right. I forget the three-letter acronym for it, but there was a special working group that was, uh, it had existed, but it was specially empowered after the 2008 crisis at the April 2009 G20 in London. And uh, this body, whose name I can't remember, under the BIS rubric, uh, is going out and issuing white papers that basically codify into place various things about the bail-in structures and capital requirements and things. And the most insidious part about it is every member of the BIS, which is almost every uh, nation on the planet, including China and Russia and some of these mm -hmm. others that are being held up as the enemies of right. the U.S. empire or whatever. Of course, it isn't really that functioning that way. But all of these member states then enact these various white policy, uh, white papers and policies in their own individual parliaments and, and, and governments and it looks like it's coming from the local level unless you know, oh, no, they're responding to this white paper that was written behind the scenes. And 
I think that infrastructure has been very been it is still, but to, to a certain extent has already been carefully laid out for quite some time now. At some point, the system that we're living in is going to fail. And I think, you know, the powers that shouldn't be are not stupid. They understand that that's coming. And I think they need a trigger at some point in order to pull the plug, create the crisis, and they'll swoop in with their solution. Well, we have a global financial architecture already in place for you guys. And I think that maybe this trade stuff is folding into it. Trump acts like, oh, yeah, I'm this isolationist, like I like autarky or whatever you might call it. But then he puts in USMCA, which is more than 50 percent word for word, according to a great study from the Ottawa Law School, uh, the is lifted directly from TPP. And then there's a provision in there that other that if you're going to do unilateral agreements like the U.S. acts like they're going to do unilateral agreements, it has to conform to that or plug into that or you can get kicked out of that, which would be very disruptive. Right. So when I see them talking to China or Brexit is coming down and TPP actually happened just without us, I feel like they're all just going to get zipped up at a moment's notice and we're not even paying attention to it. Yeah, it really does raise the question of how we're going to escape that trap because really anything that happens is going to play into their hands. I mean, any sort of crisis can be used essentially to kick the football further down the field. Any sort of side maneuver is really playing towards the same end goal, which um, I mean, again, everything is playing towards collectivization and centralization of control. And there are the people who think, well, the way to counteract that is essentially national governments will will protect us from global government but they don't realize that that's part of the game is to get your identity invested in sort of the nat- nation state system so that you can then be co-opted into let's change the flag you worship this flag well let's change it out with the un flag or whatever the case may be and a public that's already swallowed one of the collectivist pills is more likely to swallow the next one it's a question of conditioning and maybe this generation won't fall for it but the next one will and that's the long game. And that's that's the real problem is that ultimately this is about ideology. How do you combat ideology? It is only through a conscious and ideological position against the ideology that we're being force fed. And very few people even understand the game that's being played right now. I'm starting to I was I was going the other direction, but I'll start thinking harder along those lines because I was starting to think that ideology to the to the extent it goes like socialism or capitalism or whatever, at this point, I'm so horrified by the pathocratic corruption at the top. When you look at like Trump, who supposedly, I think that they use the Ron Paul momentum and they just slipped in Trump and then Trump could get everything done that Obama could never do, like globalism and all that kind of stuff. But that if you only I wouldn't care what the ideology was, if you actually had a good faith administration who was aligned with the interests of its constituents, like instead of being a pathocracy who's working against us, you know what I'm saying? But but, I do understand. And that's the appeal. And that's that's the way they keep people on the treadmill for generation after generation after generation. Just keep voting. I'm not suggesting voting. No, no, no. I'm not (laughs) suggesting voting. I'm just saying I'm I almost feel like going to like a post ideological position, but I'm an anarcho capitalist. Like I'm not talking about within a system of as am I. Yeah, exactly. So, Um, so but yeah, this is this is the real game that keeps. But exactly what you're saying. Uh, From my perspective, the ultimate political solution would be to uh, to get someone in who would 
push things so far that people would actually reject the fundamental premises of the system. So, so in a sense, so in a sense, I it's almost like I'd say, well, I almost wish Hillary had got in because she would have pushed it yes. so far, people yeah. would have rejected it. But I now like, they've got this Trump, and a lot of people are back on board. Okay, government's the yeah. savior again. I, I can't let slip something that you said that illuminated something I have been trying to figure out for a long time. Are You You must be familiar with, or probably haven't read it in a while, but the report from Iron Mountain. Uh, it's been a while, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I've only, I read it a long time ago, but it really stuck with me. I read it a few times, really examined it. And one thing I really could not get my mind around, but you totally just put your finger on it. They would say that they wanted to generate a fear of global government. And I just couldn't understand what the end game of that would be. And I realized it was going to encourage nationalism, but I thought they don't really want nationalism. But you're right. They just will then swap it out. Like you see Trump support or anti-Trump people, instead of calling for an, a restoration of the 10th Amendment and actually have some states' rights and take some of the power away from the feds, you have mayors joining international bodies directly. Like when he took us out of whatever, the Paris Accord or something. So uh, I can see how even just keeping people constantly beholden to one figurehead or one uh, coercive institution or another serves the purpose ultimately. And it will all plug into the to the globe. Right. It's 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 the it's the old idea that you can't have you can rig the game but if you rig it so it's 100 for you zero for the other person they're never going to play that game no you have to give them something and there will be on this issue or that issue that you can keep the public uh, fighting over you'll give some a little bit here a little bit there but never ever will you give up the game itself which is fundamentally rigged in the other direction and uh, this is what it comes back to and this is why it's constantly it's I mean, it's just the shifting of the window, which is why generation to generation we see just moving gradually. That's that's really the best strategy from the, the perspective of, you know, some would be societal controller. You're never going to do that all in a few years. It's going to take generations. And they've been working on it for generations and moving the window gradually further and further to the point where uh, sometimes and I'm sure you have this in your research. Sometimes I see something from a bygone era that really strikes me like, wow, people used to really care about this. And one example that comes to mind, um, I, I, I got an email from someone who was talking about their old social security, whatever, when this was first introduced. And it used to say directly on the social security card or whatever, it said, this is not a form of government ID, or this is not to be, this will not be used by the government or something like that. Um, because people were freaking out about it. The government is assigning us a number and they're going to be tracking yeah. us. It was and, the uh, 1974 Privacy Act that came after Watergate that people freaked out and they started saying you couldn't use one universal number. I do know that story. Yeah. And, Actually, and then, uh, yeah. I was thinking even before that, because I remember looking up Elvis Presley's <laughs> social security <laughs> number or whatever was was uh, <laughs> online. It was the 50s. And, and it actually, I remember reading, I got to re uh, refresh my memory, but the text on that, whatever it said, I mean, it was just clearly from a different era where people right. really cared about this. And I've even had that experience myself. I remember before I got into any of this, before I started researching or started the website, I was sitting here in Japan um, sitting there. And as a foreign resident in Japan, I have to carry around my foreigner card. I have to be able to present that to a police person or any official at a moment's notice because I'm a foreign resident here. Um, 
And I didn't think twice about that. I really didn't think about that. Okay, I, whatever, I'm a foreign resident, so I gotta, you know, either have a visa in my passport or I gotta have this card. Um, but then I was sitting there watching the, the Gandhi biopic, of all things, and seeing, okay, so, you know, Gandhi in South Africa in 1920s or whatever, 1910s, uh, was protesting and literally people getting beaten up and thrown in jail because they were going to have to carry a card, an identification card around with them, and they were burning their papers and getting arrested for it. And I'm sitting there with this, essentially the exact same thing, sitting in my pocket, never having even thought about that. And I'm like, wow, people used to really care about this sort of thing. We take it completely for granted. That's the kind of generational tiptoe that we're Exactly. It's generational. I, I remember in one of the earlier chapters of Tragedy and Hope, they said right then, like the way to change is to disconnect this generation from the existing generation. And I feel like what Ron Paul was doing was reconnecting the new generation to the founding principles, which were purely libertarian, and that something had to be done about that. And they also, it also mentions in tragedy and hope that the best way to do that is technology. And boy, I can tell you, I have teenagers and the disconnection is 100% a product of technology. Yep. Uh, yep. And, and that's why it's accelerating it. yeah. because yeah, as the technology be. progresses, so too does the disconnection. Yeah. But I think it would be great if we could take a step back to what I consider to be, and I don't know if you had this conclusion also, that World War One was really the last straw. That the the I ended up concluding that the end of the American experiment truly was at that time, and probably also, well, obviously, also old Europe. And I know that you've done so much work on that, and I and Binkley is quite the student of World War One propaganda. So I'm just wondering, Binkley, what was it that you were thinking about for? Now we've got to keep it uh, like short. I can talk the... for days about the <laughs> exactly. propaganda machine that was set up and how we were bamboozled. And anybody who hasn't seen your World War One documentary, or the World War One conspiracy, you should go watch. It's a fantastic documentary. An overall question: What parallels do you see between the propaganda campaign? Because most people have no idea that the British bamboozled us into World War One, largely, and the parallels that's going on right now with the propaganda we've seen the past three to four years with Russiagate. You know, that's an interesting, I've never really thought about those two specific instances in parallel, but I, I would, I mean, I think the World War I propaganda was a template for modern propaganda in so many different ways, because it was one of the first, I mean, certainly widespread mass media propaganda campaigns of the modern era. And I think it became a blueprint. And uh, the examples that are sticking out in my mind are, of course, the war atrocity stories that of course get floated i think probably in every conflict but i think very famously in world war one at least at the time certainly seared into the consciousness of people the the rape of belgium and uh, babies on bayonets and that kind of war atrocity propaganda that turned out in the end maybe there wasn't so much behind it yeah there were some atrocities but probably not what as it was being depicted to the public at the time but we'll sort that out a few years later you know when everything's already already been seared into the public consciousness. So that's a template that people go back to. And of course, we can see that with regard to, I mean, everything that Putin and the Russians are doing, they are just incomprehensible evil people. And their only motivation is to do evil. That seems to be the, the extent of it. So that's kind of the Kaiser Wilhelm kind of um, stuff that uh, that people were being subjected to back in World War One era. Um, but then secondarily, 
Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking also of the kind of the uh, the 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 portrayal of the enemy as the, the you know the Huns as this kind of brute, almost barbarian species, which again goes back to. Uh, and I, I tend to think of it more in line with the Syria propaganda that we get right now, where yeah. Assad, for example, is just a bloodthirsty dictator. There is no reason. There, so of ridiculous. course, he's going to gas his own people because that's what he does. <laughs> yeah. Um, Why not? Uh, Why wouldn't he? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, but actually, I guess the, the broader theme would really be about uh, Britain obviously looking at the rising Germany as an economic threat and a, a threat to its uh, world hegemony at that point. And thus needing to recruit, essentially, America into that war. So that's why the, the propaganda went into overdrive. And there was a huge, concerted, massive um, British-led propaganda campaign um, that you alluded to there. And that also kicked into function, obviously, in World War II. And uh, that, uh, to my mind, that's that's the, uh, the, the, the Thucydides trap, as historians like oh. to talk about. Um, you must essentially explain. the. Yes, essentially the the idea that almost, I mean, you can plot it out almost every time in history that you have a world hegemon threatened by a rising power, there is going to be a war. It's not every single time, but almost every single time. But in my mind, that's why that applies more so towards the China-U.S. relationship now. I see a lot of parallels with World War One in the China-U.S. relationship and where that's heading, which... Like World War One, I, I think it's going to be an engineered conflict. But at any rate, it will be a conflict. And I, I see things trending in that direction. And Russia is kind of a tag along to that. One that perhaps the neocons or the neo-neocons or whatever they're calling themselves these days, maybe they're irrationally attached to the Russia boogeyman angle. And Russia as a boogeyman has been around for hundreds of years uh, in Western consciousness. So perhaps that's understandable. China is kind of a newer boogeyman. So people haven't been trained to hate them as much yet. But I think really, ultimately, we're going to be directed more in that China hate direction. That kind of brings us full circle to an example I wanted to ask you about in uh, the context if we can't use the 3D chessboard, then let's just say that there are different uh, tiers in the hierarchy structure. And when I listened to your work on China, it was clear that Rockefeller uh, and Mao, and you know, there were all these connections from East and West that help industrialize, hyper-industrialize China. And now... You look and that might make you think, wow, we actually got China going there. Really, we did. We we did not have to make it a most favored nation for trading. We didn't have to open it up back then. When you look at the difference between North Korea and South Korea, everyone thinks it's ideological. But I say maybe it's just that we favored South Korea and we sanctioned North Korea. It would probably be a lot closer together if you didn't do it that way. Because look at China. China would be North Korea if you treated it that way, perhaps. I don't know. But I'm just saying you look at the whole China situation and it sure looks like we uh, did help them a lot and would think that perhaps that makes them kind of behind the scenes, our our cooperator or a satellite. Then you see what we've done in Hong Kong and it looks like we're against them, but maybe it helps them. Maybe Hong Kong plugs in a little bit sooner and here they are completely cooperating with the coronavirus thing. Event 201 had uh, only about 15 people were involved. One of them was the CDC US and one of them was the CDC China. So they do cooperate at some levels. And I, I was wondering uh, your opinion at, at what, le- I mean, even a war can be a cooperative. They can be like, well, yeah. we just need to kill each other. And yeah. then as long as we keep the money flowing, which they did with Germany, and they probably would now, that, that's extremely <laughs> sinister, but I think that is where they are. Yeah. 
And I think that that sort of what you're talking about was easier to understand perhaps hundreds of years ago where the, the monarchies ruled Europe and it was literally cousins who were warring with each other and they'd just write each other, hey, my, my people are getting a bit uppity. Can, can we start a war and get people in line? I mean, that, we can understand that. But to think that that's how that would operate in our day and age. No, we have representative democracies and things don't work like that. Uh, of course, I would like to think anyone in the conspiracy realist community would know by now that power structures function quite differently than what we're led to believe and that there are levels of connection that are deeper and more important. And you can trace that, I mean, I think quite quite easily in the case of China. Um, of course, 99% of the people in the various functions in the military and in government and ostensible seats of power probably do believe their own propaganda about the nationalist story and we're fighting for our interests and blah, blah, blah. But it only takes that 1%, to use that term, um, to really direct things in a specific way. And one example of that is the historical connections of a family like the Rockefellers in China since the early part of the 20th century, deeply invested literally and figuratively in China. And uh, you trace those ties, uh, as you say, uh, Mao being a, a, Yale's, a Yale, Yale, <laughs> and then every major Chinese, uh, Chinese ambassador from the U.S. for the last several decades have been Yaleys. I mean, you start to look at those connections and there's at least something there, but then you, you start to, it coalesces where... Uh, of course, I mean, uh, Nixon, of course, famously went to China and he he patched things over. But of course, Nixon was preceded by an earlier visit by Henry Kissinger, who was, of course, working for David Rockefeller. Right. And then uh, you have uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski uh, was an essential part of the opening up of China and the, the normalization of relations under the Carter administration. Of course, Zbigniew Brzezinski, co-founder with David Rockefeller of the Trilateral Commission. Mm -hmm. uh, Rockefeller and Brzezinski and Kissinger always all being in the orbit of Bilderberg at, uh, uh, in the same period as well. And then... Uh, you you extend that forward. Deng Xiaoping, he's the capitalist rotor. He opened up the Chinese economy. Um, well, he he made this famous visit to the U.S. in 1979. Um, and then in June 1980, he was sitting there, chairman of SIDIC, an extremely important person uh, in the Chinese administration at the time, Rong Yi Ren, sitting there with David Rockefeller at Chase Manhattan, signing uh, agreements to work with 300 major U.S. organizations. These are the types of this is the infrastructure for what manifests decades down the road. So we see the rise of China as an economic power over the past couple of decades. And it's like it just happened. And companies just started offshoring to China for some reason. And it just just sort of coalesced. No, the the financial architecture for this was laid decades ago. And it was laid specifically in agreements we can trace with people that we can trace that are clearly invested literally and figuratively, in the relationship between U.S. and China. That's the level at which this takes place. And just like a World War I or a World War II or various other conflicts that we've seen, where there are real people really fighting and really dying and really believing their nationalist propaganda, but there are people above them who are making sure that, as you say, money continues to flow in Europe even during war. Why is that? How did that happen? What? Who, who's signing those agreements? Those are the names we need to be looking at. Well... James, that's a bit of a of a down note because I was hoping, I still hope, I don't hope very hopefully, but I do still hope that there that there's somebody fighting the good fight. But the more as you peel layer after layer or go up that hierarchy, it always seems that it circles around. So many people argue that there really are like two factions. There's like uh Democrats and the Republicans or whatever at the highest levels. And I I don't see it. I don't see it. And even when there are wars, I don't 
I don't really see it like that. And I think it's actually worse than the way the monarchs were in that I feel like the monarchs had to, maybe they didn't, but uh, they may have had some sense of kind of filial duty to their nationality. Whereas now I feel like the international elite has more of an affinity for each other or a sense of connection with each other. And they almost consider the, the useless eaters as a sub, as a subspecies. I mean, that would explain, I think, how there's just basically doesn't appear to be any any morality at the top anymore. Mm. And going right back to the very beginning in the opening question, which I realize I never answered, <laughs> talking about the very top, uh, you know, the power, the power structure. Yes. Um, it is it ultimately it's people who go around with a shared ideology, essentially that they are fit to rule over other people, that they have a natural right to do so. And they've justified that to themselves in different ways over different time periods. And it used to be about divine right of kings and other such nonsense. Um, in our current day and age, eugenics is a, is one of those founding ideologies of the, the ruling class that genuinely believe their genes make them fit to rule over people like us. And uh, that's the kind of, uh, it's not even, it's not even really conceivable to the average person how someone could be so, warped into thinking that but uh they they really do believe this and the further you get into this the more you realize it's it it really is us versus them and the us is 99 plus percent of humanity and that's the thing i mean in a sense this is a hopeful message because yes there are people there are good people who really want what's best for themselves their family their community and yes the world why not um but unfortunately, we're not the people in the positions of power in the system as it exists, which is an indictment of the system. And our time and energy and investment, literal and physical, into the system and the infrastructure that exists is essentially our own enslavement, which is why we are our worst enemies when we participate and we go along and we we cooperate with the system. The only way to win this game is not to play it, or at least not to play it on their terms. And if people are interested in what that means... I've done a lot of work on this over the years, so I would hope they would go to corporatereport.com. Just type solutions into the search bar. I've talked about many different ways that we can start, stop basically begging for scraps from the master's table table, and start creating our own table. That's the only long-term viable real solution. If we continue to beg and grovel and hope and plead and vote and whatever, participate in their system in all these different ways, we're going to keep getting the same results. Well, James, that was the hope I was looking for. So we should end on that hopeful <laughs> note. Yes. And I'm going to go run and uh, search solutions at thecorbettreport.com. And uh, I think our listeners are just going to really, really love getting a little insight into that big brain of yours. And thank you so much for your time. I know you're a busy guy. We really appreciate it. Thanks a million, James. Thank you for having me on. Thanks, James. You guys have been listening to The Propaganda Report, where we bring you 30 minutes jam-packed with news of the day and so much more, and we do it from a perspective of truth, liberty, and justice every single weekday. And you guys can find us at The Propaganda Report on your favorite podcasting platform or at our website at thepropreport.com. We will talk to you next time.